HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Inside School Food, a new talk show for school food insiders who are hungry for healthy conversation about the issues that loom the largest and the solutions that work the best. I'm your host, Laura Stanley. Today's episode is about community eligibility, uh, an important new option for bringing universal meal service to high poverty districts easily, by which I mean with a minimum of paperwork by which I mean goodbye, traditional, arduous school meal application process. Community eligibility has been introduced in phases over the last three years in 10 states and the District of Columbia. This coming school year, it's going national. If the majority of kids in your district qualify for free or reduced lunch, you've probably already heard about community eligibility, maybe a lot or maybe a little. Whatever the case, today's guests are here to help you find out more and decide whether or not community eligibility is for you. And my guests are uh, Madeline Levin is Senior Policy Analyst for the School Breakfast and Lunch Program at the Food Research and Action Center, which we're going to refer to by its acronym, FRAC. Uh, Leslie Fowler is Executive Director of Nutrition Support Services for Chicago Public Schools. I couldn't ask for two better experts on this topic than Madeline and Leslie, so I'm grateful they could join us today. Uh, Madeline, we're going to start with you. Welcome to Inside School Food. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Great, great. Um, Let me start out by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Madeline has deep experience in maternal and child health policy and programs. She's worked in Head Start as a health and nutrition coordinator for a large Head Start program in Chicago and a member of the National Technical Assistance Network for Head Start programs in the Mid-Atlantic. At FRAC, uh, Madeline is a tireless advocate for child nutrition and the prevention of child hunger with a focus on what's being done for kids at school. Did I get all that right, Madeline? Yeah, that's great. Good. Thanks so much. 
So, um, you know, community eligibility is a pretty remarkable historic development in school food, and it seems to me a, a powerful tool in tackling hunger in high-poverty communities. H- how did this come to pass? Well, we um, we worked to create community eligibility, and it was and it was um, part of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010. Mm-hmm. It really grew out of a desire to create a better mechanism for schools to provide universal free um, school meals in low-income communities. It just didn't make sense for so much effort to go into determining the small number of students who did not qualify for free or reduced-price meals in these schools. And so we tried to come up with a model that would simplify um, the mechanisms. Um, We know that when meals are offered to all students at no charge, it creates efficiencies in the program and eliminates stigma for students to participate. So um, in these communities, families who aren't eligible for benefits are often nearly eligible and are often struggling with the high cost of rent and food and with underemployment and low wages of late. So they have trouble affording the cost of school meals for their children. So in high uh, poverty communities, community eligibility is really a win-win-win for schools, students, and communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it, tell me a little bit about the districts that have thus far taken advantage of the program. I mean, is there a typical profile? Well, you know, it's a wide variety of districts have taken advantage. Any school that qualifies for um, for the option can do so, and we've seen districts adopt community eligibility that are rural, uh, urban, suburban, small, large. Um, and while some are able to implement it district-wide, many use community eligibility in just a group of buildings So, for instance, in Detroit and Boston Public Schools, community eligibility is used district-wide, while in Chicago, who we're going to hear from soon, um, and D.C. and Atlanta, they utilize it in a large group, but not all schools. And then in rural West Virginia, over half of the students in the state now attend community eligibility schools. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, what what changes uh, when a district makes this shift over to community eligibility? Well, I thought it might be helpful because our audience is made up of school district insiders and school food insiders to just explain really briefly how it works for some people that haven't um, heard too much about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the biggest change is that normally when schools certify children for free meals, there's, it's kind of a two-step process to simplify it. It's first a step where you match children through a data match um, with other means-tested programs, and this process is called direct certification. And schools do this throughout the year, but especially at the beginning of the school year, they they figure out all the kids that are automatically eligible for school meals, for free school meals without an application. Mm -hmm. This is required for all families, households that use the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, the Food Stamp Program, but also many states match for um, families receiving cash welfare assistance under the TANF program or the food distribution program on Indian reservations. Um, Head Start kids and children in foster care also don't need to fill out school meal applications. So all these children are automatically eligible and are found to be are found to be certified for free meals without an application. 
After those kids are all matched, then in the normal process, schools go ahead and distribute applications and try to collect applications for all the rest of the of the students. So under community eligibility, they no longer have to do this second step. Instead, the reimbursements for meals are determined by applying a multiplier to the percentage of kids that are identified through the data matching process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this reimbursement rate is guaranteed for four years. Um, it can go up if poverty worsens, but it won't go any lower than that. So the biggest difference is that applications are no longer collected. All meals, both breakfast and lunch, are offered at no charge. Um, and the paperwork uh, and administrative proce- processes are simplified. So, for example, as students go through the line, their status of free, reduced, or paid is no longer has to be recorded. And the food service staff just have to confirm that a complete meal was served and that um, the lines can go a lot more quickly this way. Um, and we know that when all meals are offered at no charge, schools ha- can offer alternative breakfast programs like breakfast in the classroom where kids eat during the first 10 minutes of class, which greatly increases participation. So the bottom line is that we're finding that more kids eat when community eligibility is implemented. Right, right. And you, you mentioned breakfast, and, and that's a topic that we're going to be exploring um, on, on a later episode of Inside School Food. But I think it's important to note that community eligibility does include breakfast, which is pretty yeah, exciting. Yeah, schools, um, to be eligible to implement community eligibility, schools have to provide both breakfast and lunch free to all students. And there's a a, a cutoff point. So schools have to have 40% of their or more of their students identified for free meals through the data matching process that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And states have now published lists of eligible schools. Mm-hmm. So everyone can go to our website um, and see all a complete list of schools that are eligible or near eligible in their state. And schools now have until June 30th to opt in for the 2014-15 school year. So this is a great time to be talking about it because this is just when schools are thinking about whether to implement it next year. Right, right. And we should really reiterate that because that deadline is coming up. It's June 30th. And that list, which you um, is nearly complete, but you're continuing to add districts uh, to it right now. Is that right, Madeline? And that's on yeah, the FRAC website. Yeah, not every state has published their list yet. Okay. The states were, were supposed to do it by May 1st, but there's still a few states that are um, lagging. But most all states have um, published their lists, and we will continue to put post the lists of states that are still getting theirs up there today or in the next few days. Right, right. So listeners, if you think your district may be eligible, uh, FRAC.org, that's F-R-A-C org is the place to look uh, for that list. Um, and, and there will be also a link on our Facebook page. Um, Madeline, it seems like, you know, given what you're saying, um, this is kind of a, you know, for an eligible district, is this a no-brainer or are, are there any reasons why a district may decide it's not for them? Well, for, for many districts, it is a no-brainer. Um, but what the child nutrition director and administrators need to do is take a look at their data and make sure it works for them financially. There are great calculators available online at um, USDA, um, at fns.usda.gov. There's a community eligibility page under the child nutrition section, and you can go there download a spreadsheet, put in your numbers, and you can see what your reimbursements will be. But 
as you know, schools have to be self-supporting for their school meal programs. So Mm -hmm. they have to be able to break even, and each school district needs to look at that and then make the decision, can we do it for all schools in our district or just one school or often a, a group of schools? And the great thing is that school districts can choose to group schools however they want. So they can take, you know, schools that have maybe a much higher poverty level with schools that are still high but not quite as high, and they can group them together and maximize the number of schools that can come into community eligibility while the school still um, is able to break even in their meal service. Right, right. So, you know, I I, I spent a chunk of my weekend, you know, wading into this. I, I was looking at the um, U.S. Department of Education's um, community eligibility guidance. Uh, and it, at the beginning, it was everything, and everything you're saying now is crystal clear. But I have to say, by the time I got to like page 12, I was feeling a little lost. I mean, is implementing community eligibility complicated um, or or not or if somewhere in well, between? Well, on the school meal side, it's really easy mm-hmm. or it's, um, it's great. But it is true that there's some complications on the education administration side because people, what we've found is that people love their school meals data and they use their free and reduced price data for a variety of reasons. And you're referring to the guidance that the Depart- U.S. Department of mm-hmm. Education put out about how to distribute their Title I federal education funding within a school district that is adopting community eligibility. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. Department of Education is so supportive of community eligibility. In fact, there's a great letter, which is on our website um, and also on the USDA website, from Secretaries Vilsack and Duncan encouraging schools to implement community eligibility. And so what they've done is put out a really detailed guidance, which I think only a Title I director could love, that really Mm -hmm. gives them options and flexibility about how to use proxy data and different ways so that they can still go about the process of distributing education funds within their district without, you know, kind of upsetting the apple cart too much. And so it gives them a lot of ways to do that. Um, They have to prioritize the highest poverty schools. And when districts implement community eligibility, it can jostle um, things a little bit. And so that, that is one of the challenges. But what we've found is that when school administrators sit down and look at the guidance and look at their data under community eligibility, they find really easy solutions so that all these processes can still go forward. Right, right. So so in the districts that you've seen adopting this, you know, some someone has to initiate the process, right? So, who, you know, in a typical district or in a, in just in an example district, who's the champion? Who starts it? Well, the school school food service director really is usually the champion because let's face it, this is an amazing um, simplification for for their program. Um, it's not a simplification necessarily for other programs that use the school meal data, but it really works so great for kids mm-hmm. and for making sure that more uh, low income kids participate in the meal program. That and and obviously that the school food service director that's their mission right the school food service program they want to feed all the kids in the building and so this is really a way to do that 
and they are usually the champion of the program, and then they share all this information and guidance with the rest of the administration, and kind of everyone walks through the process together. Great, great. So school food service directors, if you're listening, uh, you're the ones to start the process. So Madeline, before we go to station break, I just want to make sure again that everyone knows that the FRAC website is the clearinghouse for information and tools for districts that are considering community eligibility. Um, and once again, you can find your way uh, there to all of it by visiting FRAC, that's frac.org, or go to the Inside School Food Facebook page. And if you visit Inside School Food on Facebook, please like us while you're there and tell us what you think about what you've heard today and what more you'd like to hear about on your show. Uh, so you've been listening to Madeline Levin of the Food Resource and Action Center on Heritage Radio's Inside School Food. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Right. And don't go away. Next up after station break is the very dynamic Leslie Fowler of Chicago Public Schools. program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Seeing a need to help people sort through all the misinformation about healthy eating, Whole Foods Market added a seventh core value to promote the health of our stakeholders through healthy eating education. In our stores, we give you the tools you need for choosing the most nutritious foods and healthy recipes, as well as offering classes with nutritionists and cooking coaches to help inspire good health and well-being. Stop by your local store today and learn more about our Health Starts Here program and wellness clubs or online at wholefoodsmarket.com slash health starts here. Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today we are talking about community eligibility, which this coming school year will offer qualifying high-poverty districts across the nation the opportunity to feed all students breakfast and lunch free of charge, regardless of their free or reduced status, and without the traditional paperwork requirements. Our second guest is Leslie Fowler, Executive Director of Nutrition Support Services for Chicago Public Schools and a 14-year veteran of public service in school food. Leslie's work focuses on large urban school districts and their unique needs, so we're going to be talking about how community eligibility works in that kind of environment in the third largest district in the nation. Hi, Leslie. Good morning. How's everyone? Oh, good. Good to hear your voice again. It's been a while. Um, so just how large is the third largest district in the nation? We are 407,000 students strong. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, when did Chicago Public Schools adopt community eligibility? 
So we started with the pilot program early, so this is our second year of implementation going into our third. Okay. And why did you decide to move in this direction? Well, we um, obviously we have a, a situation where we are at least 87% qualified, um, free and reduced for our student population. And um, that poses some challenges, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. around operationally identifying school students, being able to process applications school by school, ensuring that they filled, they're filled out properly and that students are receiving services that they deserve and, um, and need. And as a result, we're, um, that can be challenging sometimes. So what we're always looking for is opportunities to minimize the, um, those aspects and get to a point where we can um, support our students and focus solely on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and um, how many are, are all your schools enrolled, or just some of them? So currently, about four hundred and fifteen of our schools are enrolled, mm-hmm. um, and we have about two, another two hundred and fifteen that are not. Um, we used in the first two years. We used kind of a grouping model where we grouped feeder schools with one another in order to qualify groups of schools. And those schools that were forty percent or are lower in free and reduced population, we obviously didn't include in the program. But I was just sharing with Madeline during the break that this year we're going to go district-wide CEO. Um, we kind of hit the magic number with our identified students, which is about 62.5% mm-hmm. of your students identified district-wide. And so that will allow us to um, certify serving our students at 100% free. Wow. Congratulations. That's that's Thank quite you. a coup. Yeah. And in are there, you know, in in those uh, schools where that are that are, uh, you know, you, where you don't have a high percentage of uh, free and reduced, are there is there pushback or you know what's what's the effect um, in, in those environments? There can be. Um, early on, we experienced some of our more affluent parents saying, you know, there's, this could potentially be a waste of taxpayers' money, or that, um, you know, we're not eligible. We shouldn't. Uh, we should pay for our meals. Um, there's such a small percentage of our population, though, less than um, less than 10 percent of our total student population that what we try to do is remind them that the program in and of itself is here to service those students with need Mm -hmm. and that they can always opt out of the program if they choose not to participate. Um, They can always choose to send a lunch or breakfast with their student that there's no obligation to participate. So if they feel as though... um, there's some challenge or issue around that, that that's always an option, but that the greater need is around the students who have, um, have need of the program, and that's what we're focusing on. Right, right. And then, and then when you uh, put the program in place, how did you uh, communicate to the community that this was going on? So we did some um, public relations, obviously. We did some radio spots. We did send out um, flyers and informational letters to parents um, the year prior, letting them know that this was something we were moving towards in the locations that we were making the transition. Um, we sent a note. We sent a letter home that just kind of said, "What does this mean for me and my child? You know, what are, what changes will I experience at my child's school?" Um, what we did do that's um, one of the options that Madeline discussed is that we um, implemented the fee waiver form 
which is an alternate form for identification of Title I and other um, wavering of fees for our students who have high percentage of free and reduced or, or need the extra support. And maybe we waive their book fees or we waive testing fees for other activities. And so we kind of lumped it all into one form, mm-hmm. um, called it a fee waiver form. And the, diff- the major difference with that form and a free and reduced application is that you're not able to um, mandate the return of a free and reduced application. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a federal form. Um, and you cannot mandate someone to return it. But with a fee waiver form, you can include it in your enrollment packets or your back-to-school packets, and you can say to any family that's enrolling in a school that it's mandatory to return this form with any other um, applications or forms that they have to fill out for the school year. And we actually see a higher return rate on the fee waiver form than we ever did on our free and reduced applications. We've had a 100% return rate on those, whereas we still struggle from time to time to get the free and reduced um, form back at those other locations. So that, it's able yeah. That, that, I mean, yeah, that's, it allows us to get more in. Right, right. I mean, and that's a dream come true for, in most districts to, to get, you know, all that, that 100% compliance. And Absolutely, especially for our Title I office because it gives right. them a, um, a relatively better picture of what is really taking place in school. Right, right, right. So um, let's talk about participation. Um, have you been able to, to track the, uh, the change? Absolutely. So it was interesting. In our first year, we only went um, CEO or CEP now with uh, with our schools that were 100% free already. And obviously, we saw no increase in participation. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, going uh, with those schools that were at the 62 and a half or so and pushing them into the program, we actually saw um, 10 to 12% increases in participation at those sites. Mm-hmm. And what was even more interesting was the greater percentage in revenue as a result, not necessarily of participation, but the higher reimbursement rate. Mm-hmm. So our our blended re- reimbursement rate was about two dollars and seventy six cents prior to the program, and we're up to two ninety three now. Oh, that's um, a significant jump, yeah. And that's a significant jump. Every penny counts in a program like ours. So mm-hmm. um, that was a a pretty hefty uh, increase for us, and we're planning by going full district CEO next year to see an, another jump. So we'll be at 301 versus the 293. And then just based on seeing the participation increases, if we apply those across the districts, um, that's probably going to be an additional $3.7 million in revenue for the program, which allows us to do some considerably great things for the students. Yeah, Can you talk briefly about that? So you've got this extra revenue now, and I know you're already doing some pretty progressive stuff in Chicago. What what more can you do now that this the revenue is, is coming up? Well, we can always increase the quality of the, the food products. We're really focused on our local um, produce and bringing more of our um, antibiotic-free meats in. Mm-hmm. That's a, a priority for us. As we know, those are more expensive, and so that's a place where our dollars can be invested. We are investing in infrastructure, mm-hmm. so we've got some aged equipment. This is going to allow us to... Um, to update some of our, our kitchen equipment to allow us to do a little more scratch cooking. And then we have quite a few schools that have um, what we call a prepackaged or pre-plated meal, mm-hmm. and we're transitioning those programs to a bulk uh, satellite model that will allow us to put a fresher 
um, higher quality product in front of our students, and that's exciting in and of itself. Yeah, that, that is very exciting. So phasing out the prepack involves um, investing in, in new equipment, as you said, and you can do that. Correct. Now. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and can we talk just briefly about breakfast? I mean, community sure. eligibility means that more kids are eating breakfast, and I know you've got a breakfast in the classroom and breakfast for the bell program already in Chicago. Uh, what have you seen change since you put community eligibility into place? So we didn't see a lot of change for breakfast because we were already um, a provision to breakfast program. So we had free breakfast district-wide prior to CEO. So this was just an, an addition, and we really saw the, the lunch program meet the breakfast program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Leslie, I'm, I'm happy for you, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you again once you go 100% on this program. Um, and, and did you say that was next year, correct? Yes, yeah, so we, we will put in our application in June, um, just like Madeline suggested. And um, if all goes well, we will be 100% CEP next year. Yeah, great, great. So, Leslie, uh, Executive Director, Nutrition Support Services for Chicago Public Schools. It's been fabulous to have you join us today. And I know you have a lot of other exciting news coming out of your district. Um, you, you mentioned in particular that you are uh, the, really the leader in the nation in bringing uh, poultry grown without antibiotics um, into, your, uh, into your meals program on a mass scale on a regular basis. So that, that's something that we need to talk about going forward also. So uh, I look forward to having you back. Absolutely. I'd welcome the opportunity. Great, great. So you have been listening to Heritage Radio's Inside School Food. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and if you visit us on Facebook, I hope you do, please sign up to receive updates and let us know what you think, because if you are inside school food, this is your conversation. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking, we'll be picking up really where uh, Leslie left off and talking about kitchen upgrades uh, and and how that enables districts to... uh, introduce more fresh cooked uh, produce and meat so uh, join us again next week on Inside School Food and goodbye for now Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.